Hello there, you're listening to episode 6 of Miradas with John Bartlett and me, Laurie Blair. This week's episode has bullets and ballet in equal measure. For our news flash, John caught up with Professor Timothy Power, a Brazilianist at Oxford University, to discuss the Mano Dura policies of Jair Bolsonaro, why police are shooting and dropping grenades from helicopters into favelas, and the broader political scenario in Brazil. In the deep dive, I spoke with journalist Jacqueline Charles about her work covering Haiti, uh, the recent turmoil there, uh, and the legacies of the 2010 earthquake, uh, and Haiti's independence struggle as well. Um, It's a really fascinating chat, I think. Um, And in the culture section, it's me again. Uh, I sat down with Isaac Hernandez, a ballet superstar originally from Guadalajara, Mexico. Uh, Isaac is perhaps the world's leading uh, male dancer, uh, and he's pioneered various amazing projects back in Mexico uh, that are bringing dance and new possibilities to a a broad section of society. And we also talked about his recent campaigning for the world's oceans with Greenpeace uh, and some exciting film and TV projects in the pipeline for him. Uh, There's a bit of background noise at the start, but it does clear up quickly, so bear with us. Um, That's all from me. You'll be hearing from John at the end. Let's get to it. This morning we're here with Professor Timothy J. Power, a comparative political scientist who's head of the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies and a Latin American political scientist. Dr. Power's research concerns democratisation and political institutions in modern Latin America, especially Brazil. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So in the first quarter of 2019, year on year, we have Brazil's homicide rate dropping 23%, yet police killings of civilians have risen 18%. It was reported in May that the police in Rio de Janeiro have uh, killed an average of five people per day, with 558 people murdered in the first four months of the year alone. Uh, We've seen snipers from police helicopters, rumours of uh, missiles being fired into uh, the various favelas in the city. Uh, Bolsonaro ran on this kind of iron fist, heavy-handed campaign of uh, taking a, a tough stance on, uh, on criminals. Do people feel safer a result in Brazil, or is something else kind of going, is something else at play here? Well, I think when numbers are that high, you have to put that into context. So in, in Brazil in 2017, there were 64,000 uh, homicides in the country. To put that in perspective, the United States was in Vietnam for 15 years from 1960 to 1975, and there was a total of 58,000 combat deaths in the U.S. Uh, during that time. So Brazil is having a Vietnam on the streets uh, in terms of homicide uh, every year. So when numbers are that high, a year-on-year fluctuation um, of 23% or something misses the point that this is still one of the highest homicide rates uh, ever recorded in in modern human history, and it, as you suggested, it's very closely related to the mandate of Jair Bolsonaro. And so, I mean, Bolsonaro was elected because of a number of simultaneous crises. Um, corruption was probably the most important economic crisis, but also the public security crisis. So all of those crises, in, in addition to kind of political polarization, uh, propelled him to the presidency. But the timing was perfect, because this is a guy who basically owned the policy space on public security from the very beginning of his career all the way up to his run for president. So he's somebody who ran for city council of Rio de Janeiro back in 1988 and was elected. He uh, ran for Congress two years later in 1990, was elected, and in Congress, uh, through the 27 years that he was there, consistently argued for 
hardline authoritarian policies in fighting crime, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, and so that was basically um, the, the core of his public image when he was uh, running for president. So, and this is interesting, it's like Donald Trump, he's a guy who, who had a very long career but never threw his hat into the presidential ring until the moment was exactly right. So like, like Trump, he's undefeated. He had one attempt and one success, but the timing of the public security crisis is one of the main factors uh, that, uh, that brought him into the presidency in 2018. Um, if this decline that you're mentioning now you know, continues for a couple of years, obviously it takes away one of the, uh, I mean, he would claim credit for that, but it would take away uh, the broader justification for a, a law uh, and order discourse. What he claims is that he's trying to make up for um, lost time in public security. So in this, these recent um, attempts that he's made to liberalize um, the, the carrying of firearms, the owning of firearms, he's basically saying that he's trying to enact the public will as expressed back in 2005 when Brazil had its only uh, public uh, referendum on, on arms control and the public voted against banning the sale of, uh, of handguns. And so in that referendum, I think the, the NRA had a, had a significant kind of uh, role to play. Is that still the case? Are there still kind of, we still seeing a lot of foreign actors having a, having a role in the kind of Brazilian politics, in particular here with violence? I think in 2005, the NRA was more active than it is uh, now. And Bolsonaro now is kind of subsumed into a broader network of um, far-right populists. Um, he's a favorite of uh, Steve Bannon in the United States. He has his own guru, which is uh, Olavo de Carvalho, uh, a self-described uh, philosopher who's very close to uh, Bannon. So it's part, it, Bolsonaro went from kind of a, a one-issue candidate to uh, a broader multi-issue far-right uh, candidate. So he brought in um, you know, LGBT issues, he brought in kind of anti-feminist discourse, anti-gender uh, ideology, uh, anti-communism, uh, and, and lots of other ideological elements that weren't really there so much uh, in his earlier incarnation. Sure, and you, you mentioned earlier as well this, um, the, the polarization in Brazil. I mean, the, the election campaign was fought between these kind of the PT, the, the Workers' Party, and the anti-PT forces. I mean, that was the, I mean, it might be sim too simplistic to say, but I think that was the kind of the, uh, the dichotomy that was, uh, that was evolved. Um, is Brazil's political makeup changing? We've seen parties kind of uh, emerge and, uh, and, and disappear over, over Bolsonaro's term, which is something that happens anyway in Brazil. But what is, what is the, uh, the effect of, of a Bolsonaro-type candidate on the makeup of politics in Brazil? Yeah, I, d I actually don't think it's too simplistic to say what you said, um, that uh, the anti-PT sentiment uh, was critical to his election, right? So. Uh, the PT was the Workers' Party that governed Brazil from 2003 to 2016 and was forced from office in Dilma Rousseff's uh, impeachment. And after 2013, particularly with corruption scandals um, in the economic recession, <clears throat> there was a strong hardening of anti-PT sentiment uh, in the electorate. So everyone knew that when 2018 came around, various candidates would be running on the anti-PT kind of banner. Right. So the harder you ran against the PT, the better you did, essentially. And that, that was, Bolsonaro was out in front of that. But the other cleavage was a, was a broader one in the electorate. Not just the anti-PT cleavage, but the anti-establishment cleavage. This is a different view of politics in which voters were against everybody. Um, it was a kind of uh, throw the rascals out. Um, like in, in Argentina, they would say, que se vayan todos, throw the bums out. Um, 
and this was also really important in 2018. So some candidates were on the right side of the anti-PT cleavage, but they were establishment people. Some people were uh, on the right side of the anti-establishment cleavage, but they weren't well known. Uh, Bolsonaro was the only person who really couldn't lose because uh, he, let's say, was on the right side of both of those cleavages. Right? He was the most outsider candidate and he was the most anti-PT candidate. But this explains a lot of, of how he's behaving in office. It's not just a fact about the election campaign. Um, he has a negative mandate, which I mean is that he was elected for who he was not rather than for who he was, right? So um, he, for every, every uh, Bolsonaro supporter who is uh, ideologically aligned with his far-right agenda, there's probably three people who voted for him just to prevent a different outcome, just to prevent the return of the PT for power, right? So this is what political scientists call negative partisanship. So in, in societies that have very low levels of party identification, like Brazil, you can still have voters who don't support any party, but know that they detest one party. Um, and that negative partisanship, the anti-PT sentiment, right now, anyway, is still the kind of backbone of party politics um, in Brazil. But the consequences of that are really important because if you're elected with a negative mandate for who you're not, uh, it means that your public policy agenda may not actually be aligned with the people who voted for you. And I think we're seeing that already. <clears throat> things like privatization, things like um, uh, pension reform, and things like the pivot to Donald Trump, the pivot to the United States foreign policy. None of these things are broadly supported in the electorate, um, but Bolsonaro thinks that he has the mandate to do them. But actually he doesn't. He has a negative mandate. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so, is there is there any indication as well if you look if you talk about a kind of Bolsonaro kind of bombshell in in Congress and somebody that's uh, that like you say has a negative mandate? He's arrived in Congress and you've got very weak kind of party identification uh, there. And like I say, we're kind of we're moving uh, as parties kind of emerging, disappearing all the time. Um, is there any indication that we're going to move beyond this kind of this kind of fragile coalitional style of rule, or is that here to stay? I think that Bolsonaro uh, is now coming to terms with the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is that he's a minority uh, president. So all previous Brazilian presidents, uh, going back as far, but not including uh, Fernando Collor in the early 90s, they've all recognized that as minority presidents, they need to build um, coalitions. This was true of President Cardoso, uh, President Lula, President Rousseff, um, but not Bolsonaro. He's trying to pretend that he can do politics in, in a different way. And that might work if he had a party to fall back on, but what he has is not really a party, but a number of people who were elected on his coattails that call themselves a party. So he has something called the Social Liberal Party, or PSL, which had three congresspeople last year and has 50-something, 50 52 now, I think. But most of them are just various um, radio celebrities, uh, military police, uh, you know, game show hosts and, and whatnot, various types of eccentrics who lacked on, latched on to Bolsonaro, but they don't constitute what you would call a presidential party. It's more like a, an entourage of uh, Bolsonaro supporters that call themselves a party in Congress. So he doesn't, he hasn't really uh, done what previous presidents have, have tried to do, which is either build a presidential party or build a presidential coalition. In fact, he's turned his back on Congress numerous times and has really angered most of the traditional political leaders who are still at the center of congressional politics. So, at the time of recording as well, we had this, um, these, these damaging leaks uh, by The Intercept, which were kind of exposing Lava Jatu for what many people thought it, thought it always was, this, um, this kind of uh, 
anti-corruption probe, which has been going on for a long time now in Brazil. Uh, is this likely to touch Jair Bolsonaro, or does it kind of undermine the foundations of the kind of the the anti-PT movement that he uh, he kind of joined onto to, to become elected? I don't think it necessarily gets directly at Bolsonaro. What it does do is it weakens um, the super minister status of uh, his justice minister, which is Sergio Moro, who was the judge at the center of Lava Jato. And it weakens uh, the prosecution team of Lava Jato in, in the city of Curitiba, where the lead prosecutor uh, was uh, clearly uh, talking behind the scenes, technically illegally, with the judge uh, that was going to uh, rule on the case. That was Sergio Moro and Delton Dallagnol, the prosecutor. So these people <clears throat> are in hot water. Um, I don't know whether this will necessarily affect uh, Bolsonaro directly because he, he was a, a backbencher in Congress when these things were happening. But what it does do um, is it reinforces and to a certain extent ratifies the conspiracy theory that the PT has been um, giving about Lava Jato, that it was really a, um, a, a plot to prevent the return of the PT to power and that uh, Powerful individuals in the federal prosecution service and in the courts and in political society, including former President Cardoso, as mentioned in these conversations as well, um, that they were all aligned in a way uh, to stop the PT from uh, coming back to power. And actually, the conversations that were that were leaked actually show this to be true. That uh, Lula, uh, at the end of 2018, Lula wanted to give an interview from his prison. Um, the prosecutors thought that this could help the PT candidate in the election, so they maneuvered behind the scenes to try to get um, a justice in the Supreme Court to quash the interview. So it was clearly there was an electoral motivation there, and the PT is right to uh, make this uh, claim. So the Lava Janta prosecutors have shot themselves in the foot. Um, Sergio Moro um, has had his, uh, his image tarnished, I think for the second time. The first time is when he said yes <laughs> to become the Minister of Justice. Uh, and the second time is now when uh, he uh, is revealed to have been uh, conspiring with the prosecutors who are supposedly uh, supposed to be independent from him. So as you, as you rightly say, perhaps uh, Lava Shanti won't be, uh, doesn't quite encroach on, on Jair Bolsonaro in his position as president. But is there anything that is likely to over the next few months? Um, kind of really get to, get to Bolsonaro? I suppose, I mean, he, he, his advisory system is kind of a family enterprise. His advisory system is based on his sons, um, a eccentric guru who lives in Virginia, um, and a few other <laughs> bits and pieces that uh, are, are uh, giving him day-to-day -day, uh, advice. And much like other populist leaders around the world, he's very impulsive. It's a government that has no shortage of, impulsi of impulses, but it has a big shortage of uh, agenda setting, right? So um, it's, it's very disconcerting to see Bolsonaro proposing things, backing away from them, um, authorizing ministers to do X, and then actually doing Y. Um, he's putting his, his cabinet, he's exposing his cabinet members to this kinds of um, inconsistency. So I think... The main issue for him is not like corruption or uh, any kind of wrongdoing, it's just the very obvious lack of political coordination. That's what's catching up to him. And the lack of political coordination um, can have knock-on consequences in the next elections. The municipal elections will be due uh, at the end of uh, 2020, October 2020. Um, previous presidents, when they, when they wanted to uh, have a coalition in Congress, 
they either behaved like prime ministers or they got someone else to behave like a prime minister. Um, so Cardoso negotiated a lot himself. Lula um, hired sort of uh, important PT people to ha handle that role. Uh, Dilma Rousseff didn't do it well at all. And Bolsonaro hasn't done it well at all. The person that is running the show with Congress uh, is not an authoritative uh, figure. Bolsonaro is not hands-on himself, so there's a kind of a vacuum there. It'd be fascinating to see how it pans out, Tim. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, so I'm joined now by Jacqueline Charles, who is the Caribbean correspondent for the Miami Herald. Um, raised in a Haitian-Cuban household in Turks and Caicos, and later in Miami, uh, Jacqueline has won many awards uh, as a journalist, including uh, the NABJ's Journalist of the Year for her reporting on the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Uh, she was also a Pulitzer Prize finalist for the same uh, coverage. Um, Jacqueline, um, you're someone with obviously with a long-standing personal and, and professional interest in, in Haiti, um, it seems like it's been a whirlwind of a year there in the past year. There's been resignations, protests. Um, the president, uh, Jovenel Moïse, is, is on his fourth prime minister, I think, in, in the space of about three years. Could you kind of give us a, a potted summary of, of what's been going on in Haiti in the past year? Yes. I mean, President Jovenel Moïse, who is um, currently in his third year as president, he's had a very difficult time. Um, from the onset, from the elections, which were challenged by his main competitor, Jude uh, Celestin, um, with the allegations of fraud that was raised, um, and subsequent to that, there were a number of inquiries that was done where they did find that there were a large number, a massive amount of irregularities that were done in the elections, and so the elections had to be redone. Mm. Um, what that meant at the time is that Haiti had to enter into a transition period. So finally, we saw the elections. Um, Jovenel Moise was declared the winner, um, but really with 600,000 votes, a lot of people did not go to vote. There were still allegations of irregularity, voting um, voters' irregularity. And Celestin, again, um, who finished a distant second, refused to recognize him. And so from that onset, we saw Moise take office. Um, at the time that he took office, he himself um, was of the allegations of money laundering um, by one of the government agencies. And we fast forward to today, where we are seeing um, on May 31st, the Court of Auditors. This is a government agency. So these are the, the, the comptrollers. Um, they issued the second of three reports. And these reports had to do with corruption under a program known as Pecho Caribe. Mm -hmm. So Haiti is a number is one of several Caribbean nations and Central American countries that basically was able to purchase fuel from Venezuela and then they didn't have to pay that fuel back until twenty some year twenty years I think. Mm -hmm. So it was low interest. Um, but with the savings that they received from that, in terms of not having to pay today but pay later, they were supposed to invest that money in development programs to help the poor. Mm. Um, as a result of that, though, there were a number of allegations for years in terms of the corruption in that program. And what the Court of Auditors found is that, or let's just say what they are alleging based on their own research, is that um, President Jovenel Moise, before he became president, benefited 
from a number of road contracts um, right. under the previous administration, um, President Michel Matéli, who basically handpicked Moïse to be president. Um, but Moïse had two firms, for instance, which both received contracts for the same road. And on the day that President Moïse or candidate Moïse registered as a candidate in Haiti's elections, mm. uh, he received $3 million um, in payments for these quote-unquote road contracts. Right. Now, his camp, of course, they have um, denied these allegations. They are saying that these two companies are not one and the same, even though they have the same resume of jobs, um, the same personnel, and other similarities. But all of this, what it did is it, it ignited the anti-government sentiment that had been building from the moment President Moïse took office. We just continue to see these protests after protests after protests. Um, I think the world will remember that last year, July, when um, Haiti's government decided to raise the price of fuel, um, and they chose the World Cup with Brazil playing. Haitians are huge soccer fans, mm -hmm. um, and Brazil is a is you know a lot of them are Brazil fans. So somebody in the government had the bright idea that hey, if we do this while the World Cup is going on and Brazil is playing, Brazil is going to win and Haitians will be able to swallow this better. Well, Brazil mm. lost, and within 15 minutes of that loss, word got out, and basically uh, the country was shut down. I mean, they were firing barricades all over the place. Um, it remained so for three days. We saw rioting. International flights um, were forced to be canceled um, because of that. And then since then, the country has had very little calm. This summer, we've seen some calm. Um, tourism seems to be coming back, but what people are saying is that, you know, it's a calm before the storm. School is going to go back in next month. Um, the economy is just in shambles. Uh, inflation right now is 18%. Mm. The price of food has gone up. The price of everything has gone up. The exchange rate between the Haitian domestic currency, known as the good, and the U.S. dollar is about 95 to 1 U.S. dollar. Right. And just to give an idea of what that means, it's just like five, six years ago, it was 45 to 1. Okay. So people's purchasing power has decreased um, enormously. So what that means is at the start of the school year, parents don't have money for uniforms, they don't have money for books, and the government itself, which hasn't been able to really collect taxes because of the instability, is in less of a position today to even assist those families that need it. And mm -hmm. so this, again, could ignite a new round of opposition protests. I see. So it's a really, really kind of complicated sort of sort of picture there. Um, and I think, uh, you know, um, it, the suggestion is that once, you know, more about the kind of Petro-Caribbean agreements with other countries come out in the future across the Caribbean and across Latin America, there might be more of these scandals to come as well. Um, I, I wanted to kind of touch on some reporting you've been doing recently. Um, I, I'm, I think I'm right in saying it, and it's kind of this month officially that Haiti has restored its army. Um, following uh, its abolition of the armed forces in 1995, I, I think this, this was announced a few months ago and has only just kind of been been sort of uh, delivered. Um, we, we, you know, Haiti now, as of I think this month, uh, has an army of about 250 people. Um, 
but but I, I think I'm right in saying that m many of the high command of this new force are actually the same old officers as before, who are actually even committed of war crimes, uh, you know, which they um, have been convicted of, which they committed during the early 1990s. Um, what, what, what's going on with this, you know, new uh, newly restored army? Is there a kind of positive case to be made for it, or is, or do you think it's a sort of worrying a worrying sign? Well, as you see, there's been a debate going on social media where I've been declared public enemy number one by a lot of individuals who project themselves to be nationalists and say that Haiti is a sovereign nation mm. and therefore it is entitled to have an army. But the other side of this argument is that you cannot be a sovereign nation that is always um, relying on the international community for all kinds of assistance. And today, when you've got hundreds of migrants that are leaving your shores for the Turks and Caicos or trying to come into the United States, that what little money you do have, that you've decided to put this into an army. Your police force today is basically being supported by the United States in Canada and trained by the United Nations. Mm. Um, those police officers are being poorly paid, um, have very little support, but again, you've decided to take what little money you have and you've put it into an army. The argument that Haiti is consistently made is that this is not the army of old, but the army of new. If, in fact, that is the case, then why do you reach back and take for your high command individuals who at one point were banned from traveling to the United States, one of whom was the spokesperson for Raul Cedras, who was at the head of the coup d'etat um, that basically took out a democratically elected president. Mm. I mean, the argument that the United States made at the time was like, look, you know, when we look at the history of Haiti and the history of instability, it's always been the army that has been behind it. And so one of the agreements um, that was made before I even started covering this beat was for it to do away with the army. Now, interesting enough, years ago, I had an interview with a uh, higher up from the United Nations, and we were in Liberia. And he was telling me that Liberia was now sort of faced with that same choice that Haiti was faced with. Well, the international community in respect to Liberia as it was emerging from its civil war. You know, what do you do with the army? Mm. And so they had learned from Haiti and decided that they weren't going to completely do away with the army, but they were going to try to find some way to reintegrate it. Uh, but in the case of Haiti, I think it's just been very hard for some people to make this argument given the economic, political, and social reality of the country today. When mm. you talk to individuals who came through the armed forces, forces, there was this period of nostalgia. They talk about, yeah, the army didn't pay much, but there was all of this social support that came from being with the army. My understanding today with this army that President Jovenel Moise announced this month is that the uniforms are being supported by Taiwan. Uh, the uh, equipment uh, are going to be supported by Taiwan. Uh, the training was done by another nation. Um, again, so you say an army, but what kind of army and an army for what? There is still an arms embargo on this nation. Mm -hmm. The police have a very difficult time getting the necessary arms to fight armed gangs that are heavily armed. So how are you going to get the weapons to properly equip your army? Mm. I, I have seen that Moise has kind of trumpeted the fact that a fifth of this new armed force uh, is going to be made up of, of women as a sort of, you know, uh, uh, a positive element. But it, it seems that maybe that's one of the few... Uh, the few kind of piecemeal um, achievements he can he can point to there. Um, it, it, seems, it seems that a lot of what you're talking about here, you know, um, we're still dealing in many respects with the fallout from the 
2010 earthquake, which, you know, is, we're now talking nearly 10 years ago. Um, of course, many of our listeners uh, will, will be familiar with that and remember that, you know, we had perhaps, you know, 200,000 people or, or more killed, um, you know, uh, huge relief and peacekeeping operations by the UN and many different agencies. But of course, they were also subsequently convicted, well, accused and, and found responsible for many abuses and errors. Even the, the introduction of cholera was, was, was the responsibility of UN, uh, UN troops. I kind of wonder to what extent you think uh, Haiti has, has recovered from, from you know, the, the earthquake and, and sort of what more is, is needed, uh, if not, to sort of help the country kind of get, get back on its feet. Well, I think you're right in the sense that a lot of what's happening today is a fallout, not just from the 2010 earthquake, but the 2010 presidential elections and, and, and subsequent to that. Um, but if we look at the country today, nearly 10 years after the earthquake, the only visible sign of progress, we can say, is that the rubble, the debris, is gone. Um, there are still 34,000 people still living in tents. Um, there's still 23 tent cities that are dispersed throughout the capital. Um, there are downtown Port-au-Prince, for instance, there are a number of half-constructed government ministries that are not finished. Um, the parliament is still in um, containers, which is a temporary building. Um, the palace is still has still not been rebuilt. Um, mm. When you look in terms of the promises that were made, the international community promised about $11 billion. Um, that money never truly materialized. Mm. Um, what you saw when you asked in terms of, you know, what have you done or where the investments have been made, what I'm starting to find as I repeatedly ask this question is a lot of temporary, temporary jobs. Um, temporary right. this, temporary that. Um, one of the big programs, for instance, was supposed to be housing, where you start off in a tent city, and then you go to a tea shelter, a temporary shelter, and then you go into permanent housing. Well, the people in the tea shelters are still in the tea shelters. There's been very little um, permanent housing. The permanent housing that was built, um, which was done by the Haitian government with their Petrocaribib and Israelian funds, well, that in itself has been shrouded in corruption allegations poor construction, um, poor planning. Um, just to give you an example, there's one construction that was done. It's um, at the bottom of what is known as Gulf Mountain, Montabrit. And mm. you go there, and there are actually empty apartments. So can you believe it? In a country where there are 34,000 documented internally displaced persons, because there are people who are still homeless, but we just don't see them because they're not on anybody's you know, role. But mm. there's, there are empty houses. Why is that? Well, because where this um, construction was put up, there was supposed to be a factory. The factory never came. There was supposed to be a market. The market never came, was never built. Um, there's no schools. There's very little access to any sort of life outside of this apartment building. And at the same time, the construction was so poorly done from the onset the people who moved in um, complained of issues. There isn't even fresh drinking water there. Wow. Um, many people thought, or the promotion was that this was going to be free housing. Um, I remember after President Michel Matéli had the inauguration and the people went in, um, all of a sudden they got slapped with a bill that they had to pay for rental. Oh, uh, wow. So, you know, so when we look at this, it also shows just in terms of the 
the, the difficulties, but I can't put all of the blame on the on, on the Haitians or on the Haitian government because when we look, for instance, the United States as an example, the U.S. and France both agreed that they would build a new general hospital. Well, almost 10 years later, that hospital has not opened yet. It is still being constructed. Mm. Um, there are still other, you know, promises from the international community that either did not come to fruition or they're still in the process of being constructed. For instance, the Catholic Church. Um, the Catholic Church lost dozens of churches and also schools. Um, while some have been rebuilt, others have not. So it has been a very slow and painful um, process, but the hope that Haitians and even others in the international community had in terms of how this devastating um, occurrence was going to sort of change things around for mm. this country, which has just had one series, you know, a series of hard locks. Um, that unfortunately did not happen. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think I think that I think that's an interesting kind of question there as to you know where we where we put the blame for these problems or, or you know to how we divide up the responsibility. Uh, and that sort of leads me on to my next kind of question. You know, and I think for someone like me who. who as I've been to, been to Haiti and and sort of only knows a little about the island, one thing that really strikes me is the this contrast between the political social problems today and and then and then the kind of incredible um, richness and vitality of, of Haitian culture and and, and history. Um, and as it happens, we're speaking on the anniversary of the Haitian Revolution, um, which for our listeners, uh, you know, refresher it began in 1791 and went on until 1804. And and as you all know better than me, that that you know. That, that sort of historically was an incredible uh, feat in which uh, enslaved Africans overthrew their French uh, colonial masters and established the world's first black-led republic, which is, you know, is sort of almost an incredible uh, and sort of in, in very influential moment in, in world history. Um, and I think I'm right in saying that the, the French then made Haiti pay reparations to, to slave owners, to the slavers. Um, which it couldn't, which Haiti couldn't pay off fully until 1947. Um, so that's an incredible sort of story there. And I just kind of wonder, again, to what extent do you think we can trace back some of the current challenges that Haiti faces to those difficult beginnings, or whether we should, you know, look more to kind of contemporary factors? You know, what your sort of reflections are on that kind of that really remarkable history. I think the contemporary is rooted in the historical. I mean, Haiti was forced to pay reparations to France. Mm. And so that bankrupt the nation, right? Whatever money it had, um, it had to turn it over to France. That was a lot of money. At the same time, Haiti was isolated for, you know, many years by the United States. Mm. Uh, it refused to recognize Haiti as, a, as an independent um, nation. Um, and so, and then we had the American occupation in the early 1900s. Um, and when the Americans went in, they brought in their own system in terms of racism. And, 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 you know, they weren't suddenly going to say, okay, all blacks are equal here when we're not practicing that, mm -hmm. you know, in the, you know, in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, when you fast forward and you, and you look, you see that there has been this continued um, overarching you know, breach by the U.S. and others, but mostly by the United States. I mean, I've been covering Haiti for many years, and what I've always said and, and I've seen is that oftentimes the international community is always a day late and a dollar short. Mm. When they when they should react, they don't react, and by the time they do react, um, it's often too late, or they base their decisions or their support on very superficial things. 
you know, oh, this candidate, you know, he speaks English well, or he talks to us as opposed to this other candidate who doesn't, or this person seems to be championing our, our causes. I mean, or even we talk to people on the ground in Haiti, you know, often they, they sometimes say, do they only like people who have um, a, a dossier? Uh, but, you know, Haiti is a very complicated case, right? I mean, because at the same time, Haitians will chide the international, they'll criticize the international um, interference, but at the same mm. time, they shuffle back and forth between Washington and Port-au-Prince. And when the opposition is basically getting ready to launch a movement, the first thing everybody wants to know is where does the U.S. stand um, on, on, on this issue? Mm. And at the same time, let's remember this country went through a period of, of, of dictatorship, um, under the Duvalier family dictatorship. And I think that that is what people are sort of wrestling with today. Today you have a new generation of Haitians. This is a country of 11 million, and the majority of them are under the age of 40. And the schools have not done a very good job at teaching Haitian history. And so when they hear about the period of the dictatorship, what they hear about is that there was electricity 24-7, there were cars being built, baseball was being made, there was a thriving you know, economy. Mm. And it was great if you weren't involved in politics, but if you were in po involved in politics, the dictatorship was really bad for you. You know, <laughs> it meant that you were killed and family members were also killed and people fled for their lives. Mm. Uh, so, you know, so t we fast forward and bring it to present day today and you say, um, well, why are we in this situation? The reality is that Haiti's only been out of the dictatorship since what 1987 mm. um democracy has been a very painful learning experience i mean some people joke and say what the country needs is a benevolent dictator mm. um uh, but what we have today is this this cry from the ground up from these young haitians who are saying that the system um which was created in response to the dictatorship that it's no longer working it's yeah. run its course and that there needs to be a new kind of government system, checks and balances that's put in place, a new, a, a new country. Um, again, I don't know where this is going to lead to because even there you don't see uh, a unified voice. You don't have unity. You have these divisions. Mm. Um, today you have a president that is governing, but, well, not a lot is not governing. <laughs> you have sure. a president that's in office uh, who's very weak, you yeah. have an opposition that has been unable to topple him because the opposition itself is very divided. Mm. So mm. the government doesn't have anything to worry about, one can argue, because the opposition, they can't agree within themselves. Of so course. it's a, it, it's very disturbing and it's very, um, it's very troubling because we don't know where this is all going to lead to. Well, of course. You know, when you look at other countries in Africa and in the Middle East that truly have civil wars that you see, and, and, and what's happening in Haiti seems sort of minor to them. But for the people in Haiti and the people who are close to Haiti, what's happening in Haiti is major. Yeah. But nobody seems to have the answer on how does Haiti turn this around and get out of this. Sure. And, and I think, you know, that that sort of nostalgia for dictatorship is something which Haiti has in common with, with you know, large parts of, of Latin America. Um, and, 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 and just sort of finally, because we only have a, have a minute or, or two left, um, you know, the, Miradas is obviously a podcast on, on Latin America, and the Caribbean half fits into that with Cuba, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and others, but it's sort of half outside that as well with, you know, English-speaking former colonies and, and current territories too. I kind of wonder, you know, sort of what 
you know, you, obviously you cover the, the, the Caribbean as a whole, you know, what stories do you think that, you know, there need more attention? And sort of what, what kind of most, most, most interests you about the region? You know, what are the sort of, you know, the kind of excitements and, and sort of interesting bits of being a correspondent in the Caribbean? And, and what do you kind of, you know, hope to sort of shed more light on in your work? Well, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Turks and Caicos. I, I'm Haitian, but I, I was born and partly raised in the Turks and Caicos, which is a British overseas territory. Mm. Um, and what I find being in the unique role that I am and what I try to sort of get across in my writing and the stories that I choose is to show that we are more alike than we are different. There's more that unites us than divides us. So, for instance, earlier this year, I went to Jamaica and I did a story about how Jamaica was turning its economy around. You know, when I look at the problems in Jamaica and I look at the problems in Haiti, they aren't that vastly different. I mean, mm. both countries, you know, have issues of huge inequality between, you know, the rich and the poor, um, issues in terms of, you know, disparities in their, their health care system. While Jamaica is known for having a great education system, there's still challenges that are going on there. But the difference between the two countries and what I found in Jamaica is that today you have political will. You know, you have a government that is saying, despite all of these challenges, including corruption, we are going to take decisions in order to turn this around. Mm. And so when I did that story, I also wanted it to kind of be like a lesson learned to other Caribbean nations that are saying, hey, you over here who's heavily indebted, trying to figure out how do you fix your economy, how do you give pump hope back into the society, look mm -hmm. at what Jamaica's done. And at the backdrop of that Jamaica story was the IMF, International Monetary Fund, which has become sort of the big bad wolf in the region because of its past history mm. and its austerity measures, right? So a lot of people, when they have to turn to the IMF, a lot of nations, there's a lot of angst in that. And so Jamaica did it. And the other example, for instance, is that when the opposition came into government and they campaigned on the fact that the government at the time had gone to the IMF and had introduced all of these austerity measures, they didn't flush all of that down the toilet. They mm. continued with it. So there was a continuity. Mm. So what we've seen in the Caribbean in the last couple of years is that you know, this economic bubble, because of this recession, it really hit the region, it impacted the region. Um, and this is before the earthquake, I'm sorry, this is before the hurricanes. Mm. And so that's what I, you know, what, what I tried to show, you know, with the, but, the, but the region is just rich with stories. But, you know, we are more than sand and surf, we're just tourism. We're dealing with issues of, of, of immigration. We're seeing this in Trinidad with the Venezuelans um, who are coming in there. Whereas in the Eastern Caribbean, they've been um, dealing with the Dominican mm. um, migrants from the Dominican Republic, which is on the other side of Haiti, the, the island of Hispaniola. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, there's just a number of stories. Jamaica, again, um, instituted a plastics ban. Well, there have been a number of Caribbean nations that have done that. Haiti actually was the first. Mm. Um, it failed miserably, but hey, that's okay. Um, other countries have learned from that mistake. And when I was in Jamaica earlier this year, what I saw is that, you know, what people were doing their part, that there's this greater understanding that we need to protect the environment. Again, regardless of the debate around, you know, these bans, do they really work? But to see a nation really sort of adopt an idea and to see it being carried out in an organized fashion. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's 
what we want to show people that it's you know for a lot of folks in Europe and even in the United States the Caribbean is where they go to vacation <laughs> but I think they also have to remember that these are island nations where people do live and they do have challenges it's not just when a hurricane hit we remember that oh yeah there are problems there no there are real problems um, but there are also real stories that are outside of, of, of tourism that need to be covered um, and that should be celebrated. Of course, and, and an incredibly sort of rich culture and intellectual tradition as well in, in, in many Caribbean countries. Um, uh, Jacqueline, that's, that's about all we've got time for uh, today, but, but thank you so much for joining us. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll be linking to a few of your articles in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, but thanks so much and, um, and best of luck with your future reporting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm here in a slightly noisy, uh, ambient noise, uh, a barbican centre in London with Isaac Hernandez, uh, who is uh, one of the world's most famous uh, dancers, and dancers of ballet in particular. He's the lead principal at the English National Ballet. Uh, he's won many awards and prizes including uh, the best male dancer at the uh, Prix Benoit de la Danse, which is the International Dance Association's uh, uh, awards. Um, uh, and uh, originally hails from Guadalajara, Mexico, um, and has spent many years uh, uh, recently, well, of course, with, uh, here in London, formerly with the San Francisco Ballet and also with the Dutch National Ballet as well. Uh, Isaac, thanks so much for, for speaking to Moradas. It's great to have you My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm um, glad that we that we could meet. Absolutely, yeah, you, you've been having a very busy schedule recently. Uh, you've just recently been with Greenpeace, is that right? You've just been near Bermuda. Can you tell us a bit about mm-hmm. what that project uh, was there? Well, it was, a, it was an initiative from, um, from uh, Manolo Caro, who mm-hmm. is a director. He's now, um, he's been directing several movies. Uh, he's originally from Mexico. And uh, he sent me a message one day and he said, would you like to uh, create a little uh, short clip for Greenpeace? They are doing this campaign where we are trying to uh, accomplish uh, a global treaty for the oceans. It's called the Ocean Global Treaty. And what they are after is to protect 30% of the international waters as a natural reserve by 2030. And uh, at the moment, there is only 3%. Uh, that is considered to be a natural reserve, um, and and we've also been uh, we also went to track a lot of the plastic uh, and microplastic that is uh, in the Sargasso Sea, mm-hmm. which is one of the most contaminated areas in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I- initially, I immediately said yes. Uh, then he mentioned that Pedro Alonso, uh, quite a well-known uh, Spanish actor, was going to be involved in the film as well. Then it turned out that we were going on board of the Esperanza ship and we were spending five days at sea with them and with the crew. So immediately the whole thing um, started to sound like an amazing adventure. Yeah. You know? And yes. um, I made the time for it and uh, I wanted to work with Manolo as well. And uh, we started to learn a little bit more about Greenpeace and what they were doing. And, and eventually we arrived to Bermuda and we, we sailed uh, from there to the Sargasso Sea. We spent, like I said, five days at sea. Uh, we were part of the crew, basically. You know? So we were waking up very early in the morning. We were helping out with the chores in the, in the ship. And at the same time, we were making this short film that uh, Javier Bardem 
is going to present at the United Nations next week mm -hmm. uh, as part of the second round of negotiations into accomplishing this uh, global treaty. Fantastic. So yeah, at time of screening this episode, that will be happening just 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 there and then. Um, obviously, you know your your skill and your profile as a dancer has opened up all these different kinds of opportunities, and and I want to return to some of your current projects uh, in a second. But but perhaps just just to rewind, you know, I think many people listening uh, to the show might not necessarily associate Mexico as being uh, you know the origin of, of, of kind of many great dancers you know uh, perhaps perhaps wrongly you know uh, obviously your 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 father and also your, your brother you know also have, have that background in, in dancing uh, could you kind of just give us a sort of a potted history of how you came to be where you are today how did you enter this amazing world it's a it's a I mean, a lot of people say it was inevitable because um, my my dad was a dancer, my mother was a dancer as well, ballet dancers. Uh, I come from eleven siblings. Mm. My family, I'm number seven, and we were educated at home. Uh, we all did homeschool into high school, and then um, our extra activity, extracurricular activities, <laughs> were uh, martial arts. Uh, piano or guitar and ballet wow. and we were doing that at home with my dad as our teacher for ballet my mom was uh, playing the guitar quite well and then the rest we would exchange classes I guess with uh, family friends like for example one of my sisters wanted to be a painter so my parents would teach the painter's daughter ballet in exchange my sister going to his house to learn a little bit about paint and it was back then it was a very rare thing uh, to do in the society you know? so it was um, closely observed by social services <laughs> all the time and I think they, they labeled my parents as uh, crazy hippies basically for, for the longest time and, and they didn't know how it was going to turn out at the end of the day my parents were taking a, a gamble they knew that they didn't want to expose us to the public uh, education that Mexico had to offer. They knew they wanted to do things differently, but it was their first try, basically. <laughs> and um, and now it's it's been amazing because it changed my life. I started dancing in the backyard of the house where my mom used to hang the clothes, and we used to move it, clear the space for to use the the windows as reflection. And and from there, hearing my my dad's stories about. A whole world that I couldn't have access to because we didn't have internet, we didn't have any videos. It was just my dad's stories, basically. Mm. And um, soon enough, I started doing national competitions. Then I went to international competitions, and we realized that we were doing something good. Mm. And mm. Uh, I received a scholarship to the top ballet schools uh, in the world: uh, the, Par the Paris Opera, the Royal Ballet School, Australian Ballet in New York, and. And all of a sudden, this whole world opened up for me and as well for my family. Uh, my brother, my brother Esteban, uh, stuck to to ballet as well, and uh, he started dancing uh, almost at the same time as I as I did. And now he's a principal dancer in San Francisco Ballet. But you're right; it's not something that is common in Mexico. It's a very macho country. Mexico is still even nowadays. And I found that when I started to look for. Uh, help or sponsorship to go to competitions, people didn't even know that you could be a professional ballet dancer. And I'm speaking of uh, government officials that, are in, that were at that point in charge of uh, the cultural sector or different things that they were just simply not aware that this could be something that 
uh, a boy could pursue. Yeah. And that has changed a lot in the last few years with the work that we've been doing and the career that I've had, but still there is a long way to go for, for Mexico and dance. Of course. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think, you know, sort of, sort of other figures who, who you may have had, you know, uh, uh, kind of growing up and dancing. I, I think the only comparable figure I can think of in the world of, say, let's say, Latin American ballet, someone like Carlos Acosta. Exactly. But w- were there other kind of figures who, who, you know, outside of your family who, who kind of were inspiring you and, and sort of, or, or did you feel you were, in a way, you were kind of, you know... Well, the first, the first ballet video I got uh, was of American Ballet Theatre, and at that time they had a great generation of dancers. So that was the first sort of visual that I got from what I could become as a dancer. And it was called uh, Born to be Wild, <laughs> the video. And it was about the, those, those stars that were there at a time. And immediately I started dreaming of dancing for American Ballet Theatre in New York, which became my first, my first job uh, as a professional dancer was there in New York. So, but, but at the same time, I, I knew a little bit of the history through my father about dancers in Mexico. We have, for example, a great uh, contemporary dancer and choreographer, Jose Limón, that uh, up until today, his, uh, his, style, his, um, his style has been internationally recognized and is still part of uh, a lot of main companies' repertoire. But uh, I, we didn't have a particular figure as a dancer to, to look up to, like you are saying, like Carlos Acosta. So mm-hmm. immediately I went to, when I was exposed to the competitions, I went to, to seeing the international scene and I learned about Nureyev and Marishnikov mm-hmm. and started learning about how they influence um, each generation. And my generation was influenced by Carlos definitely a lot. So all of a sudden everybody started to dream to be like yeah, yeah, sure. and, um, and and that was for me a breaking point. I, I started to to pick and choose the type of career that I would like to have, and that at the end of the day was what made my decisions clearer. Yeah. So yeah, and, and, and you know, and I want to move, move on in, in a second to some of those exciting projects we, we were just, just talking about before we started rolling. Um, but it, you know, it, you've obviously you know been away from from home. For a long time, and but you but you've kept a very strong uh, relationship with, with Mexico and with your with your hometown. Um, you know, not only in it's because of being a sort of ambassador for Mexico in in a, you know, in a very literal sense, and and sort of you know uh, showing what what the country you know has to offer, but also in in projects you've you've run back home, and, and most recently Despotares, right? Which which you know, as I understand it, is a sort of a chance to bring the best of the world's ballet back to Mexico. Exactly. And could you explain a bit more about mm. those kind of things? You know? well, there was the reality no? that in Mexico people knew very little about the international scene uh, of ballet and dance in general. So when I left home, I was 13 years old and I went to Philadelphia. And I finished my training there. I joined uh, American Ballet Theater too, uh, when I was uh, 17 years old. So yes, I've been away for a very long time. Now I've been away longer than I've actually lived in Mexico. And that was a that was a strange point of my life when I when I finally reached more time outside than than I had lived in Mexico, and I started wondering what what makes a person Mexican? What is it that defines a nationality, or or why fight for Mexico and not just simply do for England or for another place where I I've obviously spent and learned a lot uh, from. 
and, and I started uh, feeling a certain, well I've always felt a sort of um, a responsibility with, with my country because I saw the necessity and I learned of, uh, of the situation in regards dance uh, in particular in Mexico and I felt like I had the fortune to go beyond to have an international career and it was sort of my responsibility to, to bring something back to Mexico um, and, and like that I sat down with uh, my sister Emilia that is the oldest of, of the 11 and we started uh, developing a, a project called Despertares we wanted the communication to be very clear that it was not only about dance because I wanted to step away uh, from what people know or think they know about ballet. You know, Mexico is known as a hobby uh, for the rich and a very particular uh, audience uh, that is specialized in this. So I, I called it Despertares, which means awakening, and I started bringing together to Mexico the best dancers all around the world. And it was a once in a lifetime opportunity basically to sit at the National Auditorium in Mexico and to be able to see what was happening at the Paris Opera, what is happening at the Royal Ballet, what was the latest collaboration or creation of choreographers like Billy Forsyth or Wayne McGregor. So immediately I started bringing to Mexico um, the top dance dancers in the world and I also introduced dancers like Sabian Glover that is a great one of the greatest tap dancers in the world um, or Jared Grimes then I brought uh, Little Bob this year that is an amazing street art uh, dancer uh, and like that I reached an audience in Mexico that I believe hasn't been reached anywhere else through dance in the world I mean I have an audience that goes from seven years old to 96 this year who was the, the, the age range wow. and from every social class uh, most of them over 65% of the people that come to Despertares come to a dance show for the first time wow. and, um, and at the same time that was not enough for me and, uh, and for my sister and we decided to create a platform that is called Despertares Impulsa where we also provide a series of uh, free workshops uh, because my, my intention was not only to have that show and then have that disappear but to leave information and knowledge in the cultural scene so that it could change slowly. So for example last year we, we had a, a workshop on how to make tutus and ballet costumes uh, and I brought the people in charge of our costume department from English National uh, the workshop was uh, in collaboration with Hugo Boss uh, to be able to provide it free, completely free. They made six tutus and six um, um, men jackets. And, and it was amazing to see how the community came, came around this, this project. Uh, they filmed it. They were in shock of, uh, of, of the innovation and, and the process. And my hope was that eventually we can see that translated onto the other projects that are happening in Mexico, that the next tutu you see on a stage is a professional one, or that this mother that came uh, to take the workshop, she can now make the tutus for her daughter and make a living, and, and like that to, to grow the circles a little bit more. We had uh, animation, uh, uh, we had choreographic workshops, we had uh, inspirational talks, um, we had 15 different workshops and one of the most important ones that actually started last year was the access to, a, to, a, to an audition uh, 
last year English National Ballet School went and gave out 15 scholarships. We had over 300 applications. Um, most of the time auditions are have a cost or you have to participate in a competition. And, and I understood from previous experience that a lot of people cannot afford that. So I thought, how can we erase those barriers that I encountered when I was uh, growing up? So I developed that platform for that reason and it has uh, been an amazing success. Last year, uh, this last edition, 12 kids received a full scholarship, housing and education from, from San Francisco Ballet. And that makes me excited because that means that at least 20, 25 of them will be having international careers, or at least the chance to have an international career. That's incredible. What a, what a kind of positive thing to, 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 to be doing there. Um, and, and, and sort of obviously, you know, uh, one thing I've noticed kind of in, in South America, particularly, which is where I, I tend to, to, to work, is, is is there is a huge kind of variety of, of uh, traditional um, movement and dance, folkloric dance. Um, you know, I'm less familiar with with, with the situation in, in Guadalajara and Mexico. But I wonder if you know someone who's trained in that in that sort of traditional, uh, in traditionally European tradition of, of ballet, what, how much you you've interacted with with, with those kind of different styles and, and, and traditions, is that something which you've been able to incorporate in any way or is it, is it quite difficult to, to sort of to, to merge no. those two? Actually, it's, it's, it's been fairly simple because we've always danced, you know? like you say, there's quite, quite a big tradition in Mexico uh, of dance, it was just uh, uh, for them to be open to a different type of language. And, and for example, this last summer I was filming a movie with Carlos Aura and Vittorio Storaro and one of his main purposes was to be able to mix folk dance, Mexican folk dance, with ballet mm. and mm. with different, with other uh, Latin styles. So we've been trying to, to do that, to create that link and also just to normalize dance in general, to mm. be able to dignify that, that profession in our country and to be able for, for, for students to be able to look at someone's career and say, look, I, I want to do that, and for the parents to feel the confidence that uh, their kids could make a living, a decent life, and, uh, mm. and, and to, to not consider it, as we often say in Mexico, a wasted life if you dedicate it to the art, or to dance, or uh, the, the famous phrase in Mexico is, if you are an artist, you will starve. No? Yeah. And all of, the, all of those things are passed on generation through generation. And I think right now we are at, a, at an opportunity that, uh, to break that. And, and it starts at home, but it starts with the parents seeing the possibilities with the society embracing this, this type of cultural activities. And I, I forgot to say, but Despertares, we presented in a 10,000 seat auditorium. And, uh, we've sold out 20,000 seats <laughs> for this show. So there is definitely uh, a huge interest in and, a, and an important change happening in Mexico at this time. Fantastic. That's, that's really really exciting to hear. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I've been kind of teasing our listeners with the uh, mention of these other projects you're, you're working on. You know, you, you mentioned just before there's something in the work in the works with Netflix, there, there's another kind of film project as well. Can you, can you share a little bit about, about, about what those are and, and, and also what, what it's like, you know, going into that, into that world of, of movies? Well, the, the, the first invitation I got to, to be in a movie was uh, Carlos Saura, 
For me, Saura has been uh, an idol for a very long time. One of my favorite movies of his is uh, The Carmen that he made with Antonio Gades and Paco de Lucia, um, which is a dance, it's a dance film. Um, he had the last fiction that he made was over 10 years ago and they were getting together once again Vittorio Storaro, the director of photography of Apocalypse Now, The Last Emperor, he, he's got three Oscars <laughs> basically and they were getting together in Mexico to create a film, a musical, a fiction, but it's a sort of musical and uh, I immediately said yes, obviously completely scared and, <laughs> and uh, sort of um, unconscious of, the, of uh, the magnitude of this opportunity. Once I arrived to the set, um, I had very little time to, pre to prepare for the movie. I realized what a privilege it was to, to see Vittorio lighting up every scene, to, to have Carlos there for any sort of question or doubt that you may have on the, on the script, to have him uh, uh, write an original script for this movie was, was really special. And, and I found that there was a, a lot of uh, connections that I could make uh, with what I do on a stage. It is definitely on a separate tone and, and the process is much slower than I thought or that I'm sure. used to. Yeah, yeah. But, but it was interesting to be able to, to speak as well uh, on, on a <laughs> yeah. film, you know, as a dancer. Have some lines, yeah. That, exactly. <laughs> and to have to memorize it. And it was interesting. It was very, very, I was trying to be very precise and I think Carlos appreciated that. that I learned every scene as a choreography. Mm. So I was very precise every time that we would repeat a scene. So he said, in editing, it will be a pleasure to edit those scenes because you you are being very consistent. So in that sense, uh, I felt like I could uh, I could do it. <laughs> uh, we are going to we are going to premiere the film. Is the aim is to premiere it in Cannes Festival and it's called The King of the Whole World, El Rey de Todo el Mundo, and the, it's original music by uh, by a Mexican singer. That his name is Carlos Rivera. He's having a a huge career at the moment and um, and then from that uh, came the invitation to be part of a series uh, for Netflix it's a new format that they are working it's a mini series it's three episodes of about an hour each episode and the director is Manolo Caro uh, which has uh, one of the most viewed uh, series on Netflix at the moment which is called Casa de las Flores the House of Flowers and uh, they haven't revealed the whole cast yet for the uh, for this uh, for this new uh, series, but uh, Netflix uh, revealed that the story had a dancer, a ballet dancer, and immediately everybody <laughs> assumed that uh, that we would be working together. Uh, my character's name is uh, called Lazaro, and I, I represent a dancer uh, in the nineteen fifty in the nineteen fifties. Uh, that comes from Mexico to Spain during the Franco era, so it's going to be interesting to, to be able to, to touch on some subjects related to that period of history in Spain and it, it will be an amazing opportunity. I think my whole life is about to change yeah. <laughs> even more drastically, but uh, I'm looking forward to, to being involved into something different and also bringing dance and ballet with me to a huge platform. Absolutely. I mean, you've already been doing that, but I think this this will will take a already mm -hmm. sort of you know um, supersonic career into into kind of hyperdrive. Um, uh, I'm really excited to see to see what happens next. Um, but um, but that's what we've got time for. So Isaac Hernandez, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure.
I'm sorry to say that that's the end of another episode of Miradas. In the newsflash this week, I spoke to Dr. Timothy J. Power at the University of Oxford about how Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro's pledge to crack down on violence has been going before we dived into the complicated world of parliamentary coalitionalism in the country. Laurie then had a fascinating chat about Haiti with journalist Jacqueline Charles in our deep dive. Her reporting has exposed a stark reality of how history can account for the state of the country nowadays and how much of the aid promised in the wake of the 2010 earthquake has failed to materialise. Finally, Laurie headed to the Barbican Centre in London to meet Mexican dancer Isaac Hernandez. Isaac spoke about his upbringing, during which creativity was encouraged by his father, who was also a dancer, and about his latest projects. He's already globally renowned as a dancer, but you get a sense that his career is about to hit even greater heights. Please do rate and subscribe to Miradas on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud and share us with your networks. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MiradasPod. Check out our website and join our mailing list at MiradasPodcast.com and reach us on info at MiradasPodcast.com as well. Our music was by La Motivante, our logo by Diego Cumplido and you can find out more about both of them on our website. So please listen again next time but until then it's goodbye from Laurie in London and from me in Patagonia. Goodbye.